0: Welcome to the Eye Baptist Church family, and for those visiting, um, I pray that our time in the Word this morning uh, will be a refreshing uh, part of your morning. So uh, follow along with me. We're going to be in Acts chapter 13, and we're going to begin our time with the reading of God's Word. Acts chapter 13, verse 1 begins. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manon, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting, And praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came came upon a certain magician a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight path of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and un- unable to see the sun for a time immediately mist and darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand then the proconsul believed he, when he saw that what had occurred for he was astonished at the teaching of the lord please join with me as we continue our time in worship through prayer dear god We come before you this morning, again, recognizing that it is only through the blood of Jesus Christ that we can stand before you today. Again, it is through his blood, the blood of Christ, that we may experience the assurance of your love, never-ending grace, and absolute rest. We pray that you would, by your Spirit, Guide us and comfort us and meet us where we are this morning. Lord, we lift up our neighbors both locally and globally who have not heard the true gospel, the living hope of Christ. And as we often do, we we pray and echo the psalmist in chapter 22 that the nations would realize their need for you and that they would turn to you as their Lord and Savior. We also pray for our young kids, all our children at this church. May you be with them in their interactions, in their conversations this morning. We pray that their times in the Bible will take root and be sweet and filled with joy. We pray that they would come to know Jesus at a young age and that you would spare them from seasons of rebellion. Please grow them a desire to want to serve you. And we pray for all those serving this morning, whether they're serving downstairs in the kids' ministry or serving behind the scenes all over campus, we pray, Spirit, that you would bring them fresh joy in their service. We also want to lift up all the hurting this morning, all those who are experiencing loneliness. May they experience your comfort and your peace. We pray for those that have drifted away from knowing you, that have maybe participated in, in church worship before, for the past weeks, months, maybe years, fallen away from you, and somehow they wound up here this morning hearing you. May, Spirit, may you meet them. May they know that it is, it is of your will that they're here this morning to hear your word, Guide them this morning. We pray for those who are battling sickness, those that are recovering, uh, those who are struggling in fear. And we pray that your grace, your strength and your peace abound in their lives. And pray for all those family members and medical staff, the many, many medical staff who are caring for them. May you be their strength and their source of rest as they care guide them in times of frustration. And again, we pray that you bring them fresh joy today. Lord, we also pray for the handful of middle school students that have been joining us from week to week. May you carry them through the difficulties of today and the questions they face day to day. And may you continually lead them to know your grace and experience it firsthand. We pray for all those who are married newly married, those with young families and those who are struggling in their marriages. May you guide them in their grace. May you grant them wisdom and restore their joy. Lord, we also want to pray for all our young singles, all our college students, all our students. May you sustain them during stressful times and delight them in knowing your nearness. For those who are new, Those visiting with us here this morning, maybe even those looking for a church, we pray that you guide them to be astonished by your word, just as we've read in your text. May they experience the immeasurable joy of salvation this morning. And may we pray, Lord, that you guide us, Lord, as we study your word this morning. pray all these things in the power of Christ's name. Amen. 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 If this is your first time joining with us, welcome. We have been journeying through the book of Acts in our series entitled Becoming His Church. And we started this all the way back in January. Uh, if you would like to, uh, join uh, us online as, as you can kind of see where we've come from as we started in Acts 1.1 and now find ourselves in Acts 13.1. We have been witnessing how Luke records the birth and development of his church, God's church. As we've mentioned before, why is it called Acts? It's called Acts because it's not just the Acts of these men, these apostles. It's not just the Acts of the early historical church. But no, this is the Acts of the triune God from the Father through his Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's recorded in the lives of the apostles and the obedience of his church. That's the church we participate in today. That's a church that meets all over the earth, worshiping God. That is our history. Let's talk about today, just for a brief second. Where do we live? We live in a time where many people, many recognize the power of the true gospel. They'll recognize it, but they won't submit to it. I was going to share with you guys a couple of movies, but instead of sharing with you guys um, some fictional stories, I'd rather tell you about God's story. Again, what is the gospel? A couple months ago, uh, I, I, I kind of ran through what is the gospel meta-narrative? Uh, if I was waving to you around my, my Bible that's kind of breaking right now, if I was waving it around, I was going to say, "Hey. Let me explain to you the gospel story. We've done this with the youth before. We've been doing with this with the college students. We've been doing it with our growth group and little sections of the church body, but I want to bring it back this morning. What is the gospel? We can break it up into five sections. In summary, the gospel is God's story. We see creation, sin, the kids know this. So creation, sin, what else? Promise, Jesus, and the church. In the very beginning, nothing existed except God. And God is holy. He was never created. And he himself is love. Out of the overflow of his love, God created everything, including the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve. They were created to know and enjoy God's perfect love forever in right relationship with him. That was creation and sin. But instead of loving God, instead of trusting and obeying him, man trusted only in themselves. This is called sin. And this is what broke the good relationship between God and humanity. Sin both enslaves humanity and makes us guilty before God. And there was nothing, there was nothing that man could ever do to make their relationship right before God again. But what do we see? Glimpses of, starting in Genesis 3.15 and on, God makes a promise creation, sin, promise. God made a promise to Adam and Eve that one of their descendants would make a way that would rescue them from their sin. And for many, many years, humanity long awaited for their hero to arrive. Creation, sin, promise, Jesus. The hero of God's story is Jesus. Jesus, who is fully man, fully God, came and took the punishment that humanity deserved for their sin and, get this, died in their place. We sang about how Jesus took on the full wrath of God in our place. Jesus died in our place. The story does not end there. Three days later, Jesus rose from the dead which displayed his power over death and his power to give new life for all those who believe in him. This new life is for anyone who repents and believes in him, that they will be in right relationship with him forever. Creation, sin, promise, Jesus, and the church. After Jesus resurrected from the dead, he spent 40 days instructing his followers about his plan to spread the good news of the gospel. First, he was going to give them his spirit. Secondly, he gave them a mission. And thirdly, he gave them another promise that he would one day return. Jesus ascended to the Father in heaven, and his spirit was unleashed and given. And his church was born. And the mission continues today. That anyone who repents and believes in Jesus is added to his church, God's family, and shares in this mission. And as we wait Jesus' return, believers spread the good news of the Gospels to all the peoples of the earth. So that they too will believe in Jesus and be in right relationship before a holy God. This is God's story. This is the gospel. This is what the whole Bible is about. We're gonna come back to this here and there this morning. So now that we've talked about where we are, what the gospel is, let's talk about where the text lives. Chapter 13 picks up where chapter 11 left us off. I agree with R. Kent Hughes when he wrote, these great men in Acts chapter 13, they didn't know it. But the greatest chapter in church history was about to open. The passage here in Acts 13 is an extraordinary turn of events in the Luke-Acts narrative. For the past six months here, we've been studying in chapters 1 through 12, and we saw how Luke focuses this narrative on the ministry of Peter his ministry to the Jews, but now it's this unfolding of a new chapter. In chapters 13 and on to the end of Acts in chapter 28, we will now see Luke focus on the ministry of Paul as the greater, larger world is being reached, not just Jews, but everybody. What makes this passage even more unique is that this is the first time in Acts where we see a planned, intentional effort by the whole church to make the gospel known to the larger world. This is something that made the church in Antioch very remarkable. Up until this point in Acts, the gospel, to a great degree, reached those outside of Jerusalem only as a result of persecution and in a few cases, God's divine intervention. We saw that with, with the Ethiopian eunuch. That was God guiding one man. And I like how John Stott phrases it. He comments Up until this point, nobody has yet caught the vision of taking the good news of the gospel overseas yet. But here, here in Acts chapter 13, we see how God sends the first overseas mission team set apart by the church to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. A recurring theme that we have seen in the Luke-Acts narrative is that Christ unifies people from very unlikely backgrounds. And if we go all the way back to the gospel narratives, earlier in these narratives, we see the Jewish tax thieves unified through Christ with the Jewish fishermen. We see Jewish academics unified by Christ with uneducated Jewish men. Don't get me wrong, this is extraordinary. God unifying people that are so different within the Jewish world. But in the early chapters of Acts now, we begin to see something even more extraordinary. The love of Christ, the gospel message, was going to advance into the larger world in such a powerful way that it would go beyond just the Jewish people. No longer was the early church going to look strictly Jewish. In chapter 8, we see God's plan continue to unfold as the enemies of the Jewish people, the Samaritans, hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and they receive this good news. We also read later in chapter 8 of Philip witnessing to the man from Ethiopia Who had also received the good news of Jesus and was then baptized into God's family. In chapter 9 of Acts, we read of how God's supernatural work transforming Paul, a pastor once wrote, a once terrorist transformed to be an evangelist. In chapter 10, we see God's supernatural work when a group of non-Jewish people welcome the good news of the gospel that we just talked about and then they themselves are welcomed into God's family, the church. That's in chapter 11. This church in Antioch was primed for missions to the larger world, and this is where chapter 13 picks up. The title of the sermon this morning is Being Equipped for True Gospel Mission. And again, uh, we will be in Acts chapter 13, starting in verses one, going through 12. And for those of you who don't identify with Christian or with being a Christian, I'm glad you're here. My hope for you guys that aren't Christians is that you will understand why Christians get so crazy about the gospel, that you will understand why Christians must tell others about Jesus. We can't help it. But not only that, my hope also to you Non-believer is that you will embrace your personal need for him this morning. Christians, this message is also for you. My hope is that whether you cross the street or you cross the Pacific, that you will be encouraged in your everyday gospel witness and further equipped for further gospel mission. Follow along with me as we begin again in verse 1 of chapter 13 in Acts. What does the text say? The first point this morning is the true gospel unifies his church to worldwide mission. Therefore, believers must communicate the gospel relationally, prayerfully, and scripturally. I'm gonna make you guys write a lot of stuff this morning. <laughs> but again, believers must communicate the gospel relationally, prayerfully, and scripture. We're gonna see all of that here just within the first five verses. You know, there, there are many things that people look to to find unity with others. I love awkward, hearing awkward conversations with people that meet for the first time. It's always neat to see what. What are they talking about that tries to find these pinpoints of similarity interests um, as well as unifying factors? You will often hear people trying to find points of unity, seeking these things with others through questions. Pop or (laughs) hip-hop? TikTok or Instagram? Uh, Keto, keto or vegan? You know, reading the book or watching the movie? Save up or spend now? You know, the, the hope in asking these questions is that impulse to say with a hearty, oh, me too, me too. <laughs> and hopefully you won't come back with a sorrowful like, oh, you're one of those. You know, many, many people are looking for others with similar interests because they're looking for community. They're looking for something to unify them with another person. And they're trying to do this by looking for similar interests in their hobbies in their careers, maybe their hopeful careers, their sports teams, maybe fantasy teams, and culture, and even in their lifestyles, or they'll even try to find similar tastes and experiences, hikes that you like here in Hawaii, Netflix series that you binge watch, music, similar food, or even similar clothing tastes. Brothers and sisters in Christ, something that I hope you will find encouraging this morning is that you are, if you are saved by the blood of Christ, these questions, this isn't something Christians need to do to find unity. This, this also isn't what Christians need to do to find community. No, those who follow Christ have immediate community. They have immediate unity with others who follow Christ. And this unity in Christ, it it not only compares to, it transcends any and every difference we may have with other Christians. Whether it be visible or invisible differences, cultural, preferable differences, all our differences fade away in light of the reality that we share unity in Christ. Why is this? It is because the unity Christians share in Christ, it far surpasses any difference you may have with your brother or sister in Christ. Might be burning some bridges with half of our staff when I say this, uh, but this means you can still enjoy the Lord of the Rings and pineapple pizza and still be my brother in Christ. Maybe even see us lose, But because we share in unity, that we are both sinners saved by the same blood of Christ on the cross. We also share the same indwelling spirit, the same spirit that is given to us as believers is the same spirit that indwells in you as a believer. And we're also given the same mission to carry the good news of the gospel to the end of the earth. Now a couple weeks ago, we began to see this glimpse of international ministry to non-Jewish people. And it was in the example of some unnamed anonymous men in chapter 11. But at this point in the early church, while the majority of believers were speaking the word to no one except Jews, this is chapter 11, there were some men from Cyprus and Cyrene who advanced the good news of the gospel to non-Jewish people. They got it. This ministry of some men reaching the Gentiles, it beautifully crescendoed into an intentional church-wide mission. And it seems that this church in Antioch finally understood what Jesus meant when he commissioned all believers to go. Go and make disciples of all nations. This wasn't just seek the Jews of all the nations. It's reach all the peoples of all the nations. This gospel unity displays itself in worldwide mission. And it does so in three unmistakable ways that we just talked about. In verse one, we are told of how this church communicated the gospel relationally. In the beginning of this chapter, we see five men who seem to be serving as elders within the church of Antioch. And instead of Luke taking the time to define what their titles mean or describing what their leadership role is, As prophet and teacher, Luke seems to draw our attention somewhere else. He draws our attention to a sense of their diversity. Their names were Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Manon, and Saul himself. This group has been affectionately referred to by my mentor's mentor um, as the Antioch Five. We see great diversity in this group. Barnabas, we're given some detail uh, in chapter 4 that he is a Jewish believer from Cyprus. Simeon, who is called Niger, whose name in Latin means dark or black. He is believed by many scholars to be from Africa, um, or more specifically, one of the Ethiopian nations. Lucius, uh, described he's from Cyrene, an area of North Africa as well. Manon, on the other hand, is not identified by his home country but by the royal home in which he was reared. He may have been the foster brother or some form of relative of Herod Antipas. And finally, we have Saul, a Jewish believer from Tarsus who was educated by Gamaliel, one of the most esteemed Jewish leaders of his day. Some pastors regard the fact that Saul, who we now refer to as Paul, uh, kind of brings this professionalism to this group of five. Now, these men reflected the diversity within the congregation they served. It wasn't just that they hired a whole bunch of people to make the church look diverse, like we see today in some churches in America. No, these churches represented the many different peoples in the congregation. This church's unity was not founded on their geographical backgrounds. Their unity was not founded in their age or their social class, not even in their academic pursuits, nor in the color of their skin. Their unity was anchored in their desire to know the gospel and make the gospel known. Tim Keller writes, it shouldn't surprise us that the concept of worldwide missions was born in this diverse group. I love that. We also see how the church communicated the power of the gospel prayerfully. Not just relationally, but prayerfully. Look at how Luke describes the church in verse 2. Look look at verse 2. The entire church took part in worshiping the Lord and fasting. This, This is the tone that was set when God's Holy Spirit leads the church in a new direction. See, Luke is indicating that they were fasting, uh, and this suggests that they were praying expectantly, depending on God to guide them. And the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Notice the humility. We talked about this on Wednesday night. Notice the humility and the dependency and the worship of these two exceptionally gifted men. God didn't call them, and they just ran to boot and said, I was made for this. (laughs) Thanks, God. No, verse 3 states that it was only after more fasting, more praying, that the church acted in obedience. Do not miss this. This passage begins with prayer. Barnabas and Saul are chosen. The church goes back to prayer and fasting. The passage seems to suggest that this wasn't a special prayer gathering, but rather, this was a church that was constantly, constantly immersed in prayer. You know, I'm reminded of a story in the late 1800s. Um, Pat and I, we enjoy Spurgeon, uh, but check this out. Uh, I'm reminded of this story that I read uh, in one of his books in the late 1800s where a group of young men went to visit the London Metropolitan Tabernacle. These young men were curious to see how this one church could draw close to 10,000 people every Sunday morning. So these young men, upon entering the door, a humble man behind them spoke to them and and mentioned to them to follow him uh, in order to know the secret behind this church's supernatural success. So this humble man brought these young men to the boiler room door. This is the entryway, the basement of the church. And he opened the door. When he opened it, these young men were speechless. These young men were floored when they saw several hundred people, hundreds and hundreds of people on their knees in prayer. This gentle, humble man then introduced himself as Charles Spurgeon and welcomed them to join the church in prayer before the worship service. This is what it means to communicate the power of the gospel prayerfully. Not only was this church in Antioch obedient to the direction of the Spirit, but we see this church send away two of their key leaders for the good of others to know the gospel message. This was faith. And the laying of hands that we see in this passage was an expression of the church confirming their calling, identifying their commitment with these two being sent as an extension of the church and an expression of the unity. Their mission, it's the church's mission as well. Finally, finally, It's not just relationally, prayerfully, but finally we see how this church communicated the gospel scripturally. After Luke reminds us a second time that Paul and Barnabas were sent out by the Holy Spirit, he explains that they traveled from the port of Antioch, named Seleucia, to the port of Cyprus, named Salamis. I don't know if you guys like Cocoa Head or not, but geographers have commented that on a clear day, you could see the shape and outline of the island of Cyprus from Seleucia. This was possibly the image that they saw as they were being sent away. This was about 130 miles away. It's almost that rare equivalent of standing at the top of Cocoa Head, if you've ever made it up there, but standing at the top of Cocoa Head and being able to see that faint outline of Maui, 116 miles away. There are several reasons why Saul and Barnabas chose to begin their first missionary journey to this island of Cyprus in the Mediterranean. I'm going to name four big ones. Why would they choose Cyprus as their first missionary journey? For one, this was Barnabas' homeland. This is his home country. It was familiar territory for him. He knew where to go. He knew where the needs of the gospel was. He probably had relationships with people that he knew was drowning in their sin and needed the gospel. The island of Cyprus was also close in proximity, uh, roughly 60 miles, about a two-day journey Uh, away from Antioch. It was close for them to reach out and reconnect with them. In chapter 11, it also explains that there were some believers that were from Cyprus who already belonged to the church in Antioch. It's possible that they could minister to the friends and the family, former co-workers of the people in Cyprus. And we also know that the Hellenists themselves, they went in chapter 11. They had already begun the gospel mission there where Paul and Barnabas and John Mark were gonna pick up so, how would they begin their mission to this people group? Luke explains immediately. When they arrived at the port, they proclaimed the word of God. What what did Luke mean when he said that they proclaimed the word of God? Understand that they didn't begin teaching about Jesus from Romans. They didn't go through the Romans road. They didn't go through the prelude of John. Uh, They didn't go through uh, Philippians. They didn't go through Colossians or any of the gospel narratives. In fact, almost all the books that we see in the New Testament today wouldn't be written for another three to 45 years after this current event in the narrative of Acts chapter 13. So if Paul and Barnabas did not use the New Testament to talk about the gospel of Jesus, what did Luke mean when he said they proclaimed the word of God? To put simply, they preached about Jesus from the Old Testament. Those who were present in the synagogues would have known the Jewish scriptures. They would have known the Old Testament. They would be worshiping God. And in fact, they would have believed and somewhat anticipated in their own way the promises that God sent one would one day be fulfilled. They were waiting. And yet, they still needed someone, someone to faithfully proclaim to them That all these divine promises that they see in their scriptures were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Another pastor said it this way, Paul uses his audience's existing grasp of scripture to show them that Jesus is the hero of their Bible. We have already seen this type of proclaiming, this type of preaching with a number of people up until this point in Acts. The apostles in Acts chapter 2, this do this type of proclaiming. Peter in Acts chapter 3. Peter in John in Acts 4. Stephen does this type of proclaiming the word of God in Acts chapter 7. Philip in Acts 8. Saul in Acts 9. Peter again in Acts chapter 10. And here in chapter 13, we now see how Paul and Barnabas do the same. They proclaim the gospel message of Jesus in the synagogues of the Jews using the Old Testament Jewish scriptures in order to explain to them how Jesus was the fulfillment of God's promises, that he was the one sent to make sinners right before God. You know, I appreciate pastors like Kevin Wax and Sydney Greenius, who have made great strides in producing gospel-centered resources for the church. What are these resources, they're specifically how to faithfully preach and teach from every area of the Bible, especially the Old Testament scriptures. There are some of you today who have made great attempts to start reading your Bible but not knowing where to begin. Maybe you became intimidated by the difficult names and the strange grammar in the first 10 pages of Genesis and you gave up. Others of you are following the church's Bible reading plan in your bulletin. That's just awesome. But when you become discouraged, when you find discouragement, When reading becomes difficult and more difficult, be encouraged that your readings in Genesis all the way to Revelation are not for granted because they will lead us to the hope we have in Christ. I'm reminded of Spurgeon's comment, whenever I get a hold of a text, I say to myself, there is a road from here to Jesus Christ and I mean to keep on his track until I get to him. It is through the reading of God's word that each of us are being equipped to be his church together, one that proclaims the good news, lives it out, and also tells others about the gospel to a lost and dying world. Christians, again, I want to exhort to you, communicate the gospel relationally prayerfully and scripturally because the true gospel is the only thing that unifies his church unto worldwide mission. The unity that was displayed in the diverse relationships of the church in Antioch as well as the prayerful culture and their scriptural focus overflowed into worldwide mission. My second point this morning is some seek the true gospel and others will oppose it. Therefore, those who are Christian, as well as those who are not yet Christian, must seek faithful teaching relentlessly. You see, there there are many reasons why a person would oppose the true gospel. Two things are noted, materialism and pride. For some, it's materialism. They oppose the gospel because they seem to have a comfortable life for themselves, maybe a steady career or the promise of a steady job, seems like nothing is lacking, and they seem to have a handful of friendships and great relationships with others. Everything seems good, but that's the problem. They feel as though the gospel would threaten their lifestyle, rob them of their comfort, and would ultimately leave them empty or even wanting in the end. Others in this group oppose the gospel because of pride. So, not just materialism, but pride. One pastor explains that out of pride, many people arrogantly refuse to admit that they're wrong. They refuse to humbly repent from their sin and say that the gospel is true and salvation is in Christ alone. And the problem is the gospel confronts these idols. But that's one side. There are also some on the other side. Maybe they're disenchanted with the empty promises of politics or fame and fortune. They're tired of trying to climb ladders in their workplaces. They're weary of the advice of countless opinions that were never solicited and that was always offered. And it is for these reasons that they seek to know the genuine truth about life, the gospel of Jesus Christ. These two realities collide in this section of the narrative. Here in verses 6 through 12, Luke brings us to the climax of this narrative. He introduces to us two individuals that display differing responses to the gospel, one who seeks the gospel and the other who opposes it. Luke explains that as Paul and Barnabas and John Mark, this trio, work the ninety mile stretch of the island, they reach Paphos and encounter two men, one man named Elimus, Bar Jesus, and the other Sergius Paulus. I want to first direct your attention to verse seven, where we see some helpful descriptions of this man named Sergius. Who is Sergius? Sergius is identified as the proconsul, referring to his authority as the ruling governor of Cyprus. This governor was given his authority by the Roman Empire. He is described as a man of intelligence who seems to be tired of the materialism and idolatry of his culture, and also tired of the guidance of his personal prophet named Bar-Jesus. It seems evident that this governor hungered for a deeper, more genuine understanding of scriptural truth than bar Jesus could ever provide. There's an important truth in the example of Sergius. Parents, children, uh, those who are students, middle school, high school, I want you to pay attention to this point. We see an example in Sergius here in this text. There is no amount of power. There is not enough riches. There is no amount of study There is no amount of intellect that could ever make us feel whole. There will always be a hunger for something that transcends scholarship, that transcends authoritative power, and that transcends financial comfort. It it was because of this hunger that the governor, Governor Sergius, summoned Barnabas and Saul to hear the word of God. Apparently, word had spread that the missionary trio was teaching captive audiences on the island about the truth, and Sergius wanted to hear it for himself. Now, look at the way that that, that Luke describes the other man named Alimus, Bar-Jesus. Like Simon Magus that we saw in chapter 8, Alimus was described as a magician, better translated, a trickster, a pretender with false powers, and a hustler. You know, this hustle setup that he had with the Roman Empire, with the Roman government, it was lucrative. He had comfort there. You see, Romans highly esteemed those who were acquainted with supernatural omens and divination, and highly revered Jews of their religious inside scoop on the supernatural. He had a puffed up resume, he did it all. It was common that the Roman officials would have their own prophets who would help them lead their people with authority and with power. And this connects us to the fact that Alimus made much of his Jewish stage name, Bar-Jesus, which can be translated son of the savior. Regarded as a Jewish false prophet, it is probable that Alimus offered his services of predicting the future to the proconsul, and in return would become the personal advisor to Sergius Paulus. He used his Jewish heritage and his sly tactics to gain access to great power for him, seeing Paul and Barnabas threatened all that comfort that he bought for himself. For him, it was fight or flight. He chose to oppose Paul and Barnabas by keeping the governor away from the gospel message. So in verses 9 through 11, we see that Elymas was not only opposing Paul and Barnabas' teaching, he was opposing God himself. Elimus certainly lived up to the description of false prophet because he fought against the truth of God. In this section, we see what happens to those who oppose the gospel message. They face God's righteous judgment, just as we saw with Herod earlier in chapter 12. As Elimus was seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith, we see God intervenes in verse 9 through his Holy Spirit. Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, announces God's judgment on Elimus. Instead of truly being Bar-Jesus, the son of the Savior, he is called out as the son of the devil and the enemy of all righteousness. Interestingly enough, part of the God's judgment on Elimus entails that the hand of the Lord is upon him. You know, this phrase, hand of the Lord upon them, it was an encouragement in chapter 11. It was an encouragement to read that the hand of the Lord was upon faithful believers who are spreading the gospel news in Antioch. What a comfort, what security that was to hear that the hand of the Lord was upon them. But here, in this passage, we see how the hand of the Lord was also upon Elimus. As a product of this judgment, Elimus shares the same physical punishment that Paul himself faced. Elimus was struck blind and unable to see for a time. Dr. Luke explains that immediately a mist, a darkness fell upon him, and he went about being humbled, seeking people to lead him by the hand. Understand the contrast that is being portrayed. As one pastor writes, Paul is filled with the Holy Spirit. Bar-Jesus is filled with deceit and trickery. Paul is a child of God. Bar-Jesus, far from representing his name, is a son of the devil. Paul is telling everyone about the righteous one who makes sinners righteous. Bar-Jesus is an enemy of all that is right. Paul is announcing the way of salvation. Bar-Jesus is perverting the way of salvation. And instead of advocating real conversion unto Christ alone, Bar-Jesus advocates for spiritual perversion. It is for this reason that I again want to urge you to seek faithful teaching relentlessly. Whether you're a Christian or still checking it out, Seek those who faithfully teach scripture. It is only through faithful teaching of scripture that you will know the gospel, the power of God unto salvation. There are many like Alimus who oppose the gospel and choose to pervert the truth of God's word for their own gain. Whether it's financial gain or fame, we must oppose men like Alimus because they are false teachers who oppose truth. And I love how we see the pastoral heart of Paul who lovingly calls out Alimus as a fraud. It was more loving for Paul to call him out on his sin than to allow him to continue perverting the gospel truth because it threatened Paul's witness to the proconsul, it threatened Alimus' opportunity to repent, and it also threatened their ministry to others on the island of Cyprus. J.C. Ryle once wrote, he who is not zealous against error Is not likely to be zealous for truth. You know, one of the crucial responsibilities that Matt and I share as pastors is to protect our church from false teaching. Jesus explained in Matthew 7 that it's not just false teaching that we must be weary of, but it's also false teachers themselves. Jesus uses this imagery that false teachers are like wolves clothing themselves in lamb's wool, seeking to devour their flock. Apologist Costi Hinn, the nephew and former associate of false teacher Benny Hinn, once said, leave a church if your pastor won't call out blatant false teaching and dangers and has a track record of staying silent when the fight for truth is on. You are in spiritual danger. Church, guests who are searching for a church home believers those who are not yet Christians those who are struggling with materialism and pride and especially especially those who violently reject and oppose the gospel i have the same challenging point for you i want to lovingly exhort you to seek faithful teaching relentlessly because it is only then when you seek faithful teaching relentlessly that you will find comfort and rest that the hand of the Lord is upon you. Only then will you know Christ. You may be asking yourself that obvious question, why? why, why do I need to seek faithful teaching relentlessly? Why do Matt and I need to protect this church from false teaching? These questions bring us to the third and final point as I wrap up. Where the truth of the gospel is faithfully taught, God will produce fruit. And this is only found in verse 12. This one verse alone makes this third and final point. Therefore, embrace the gospel and seek ways to make the gospel known. In order for the proconsul to clearly hear Paul's teaching of the Lord, God needed to remove the obstacle, Elymas, and authenticate these missionaries and their teaching. I was saying I didn't like Lord of the Rings. Uh, hopefully, I'll win you guys back over. Lot are fans. I'm reminded of the scene in Tolkien's Two Towers where Gandalf exposes the evil and cowardly sorcerer who casted a spell on the king. The spell seemed to slowly kill the king, to debilitate him deaf and mute for help and caused him to be controlled by this evil sorcerer's enchantment. But once this man is exposed, the curse is lifted. The color of his lifeless skin returns and he is brought to life. I want to direct your attention to verse 12. The final product of the Cyprian mission is somewhat similar. It was after God intervened in a miraculous way that the proconsul heard the teaching of the Lord and believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like we have seen a number of times in the Acts narrative, God's miraculous work made a way for sinners to hear the gospel message and then turn to Christ for salvation. Again, look at verse 12. What was the proconsul astonished at? He was not astonished at the miracle. Instead, he was astonished by the teaching of the Lord. It's because of that he believed. Like soothing medicine on an ailing wound, the proconsul received the truth of the gospel and found new life in Christ. If you're not a believer this morning or maybe you yourself you identify with Alimus opposing the gospel because of pride and materialism that you struggle with I want to exhort you embrace the gospel. Like Alimus on my own I struggled through pride and materialism before I met Christ. And I always found myself defeated always left myself wanting on my own strength, but only until I repented of my sin and turned to Christ that I could embrace the gospel message. Only when I embraced the gospel message did I experience the unity and the love of Christ that only comes from the gospel. So that was to the non-believer. Now I'm going to switch to the believers, Christians. Failing Christians, faulting Christians who have fallen away for these past years, months, days. Communicate the gospel relationally, prayerfully, and scripturally. How do we do this? Brothers and sisters in Christ, I want to urge you, we do it through embracing the gospel message. You can't communicate what you do not know. As I have said countless times, you I, we, all believers need the gospel. Students, adults, you do not graduate from the gospel message. That is not yesterday's news. That is the lifeblood of our faith. Do not grow weary of your grasp on the gospel. Do not lose your gospel urgency. Do not cast aside the need for gospel centrality. You, I, we need the gospel. Embrace the gospel. It is only when we embrace the gospel that we are growing in our Christian life. You know, it is always heartbreaking for me to come across believers who have failed to embrace the gospel message. This is one reason why we have people who grew up in the church their whole lives and for decades and still remain infants, babies in their faith. In love and in grace. If that's you this morning, I'm still glad you're here. Don't recoil in shame. Don't give up on caring for your spiritual health. I want to encourage you, faulting, failing Christian, infant believer, that you have brothers and sisters in Christ, a community of people who are ready to journey with you in fellowship and study God's word together. Come and talk to me. Come and talk to Matt, any of our staff. We would love to connect you to one of our Bible studies or to our small group, growth group ministry. Christians, again, I want to exhort you, seek faithful teaching relentlessly in order to be transformed by the gospel. You need to seek it. And don't just embrace the gospel. Don't just seek ways to make the gospel known. Whether you are crossing the street or crossing the Pacific, I pray that the Spirit has brought you encouragement through this passage to make the gospel known in your areas of influence. I pray that you find great inspiration and instruction to make the gospel known in your classrooms, your office break rooms, your homes, your neighborhoods, to people of influence, to international peoples, to the least of these, to the greatest of these, and beyond. This is what it means to be his church.